0: Well, brothers and sisters, we're here. Let's give a hand clap of offering to the Lord. You had 10 months to back out if you wanted to, but you are here, which means you're in it. Amen? In a book titled The Sunflower, written by a Jewish Holocaust survivor named Simon Wiesenthal... Simon Weisenthal recounts a true story uh, that occurred during the horrific time in our history, the Holocaust, when he was an inmate at a concentration camp. The story goes, one day he and a group of inmates were sent to clean medical waste at a converted army hospital for wounded German soldiers. As they were working, a nurse comes to Simon and asks, Are you a Jew? And he answers yes. The nurse asks Simon to follow him and takes him into the hospital building through the hallway, through the steps, and finally to the bedside of a 21-year-old Nazi soldier named Karl, who seemed to be in great anguish and agony, not only physically, but something about his spirit, was heavy. The injured soldier's head was completely covered in bandages with openings only for his mouth, nose, and ears. Carl was on his deathbed. When he sees Simon, he musters up all his strength that he had left, and ask Simon to please come near to the bed. I can't speak very loud. And when Simon draws close, he begins to tell Simon a story. Carl begins, I know that at this moment thousands of men are dying. Death is everywhere. It is neither infrequent or extraordinary. I also am resigned to dying soon, but before I die, I want to talk about an experience which is torturing me, torturing my soul right now. Otherwise, if I don't share this story with you, I cannot die in peace. I must tell you of this horrible deed and tell you because you're a Jew. And Carl began to recall an incident which occurred about a year ago when he was sent to fight in Russia uh, about coming one day to a village. And Carl began to continue the story. Uh, We arrived at a square. We got out and looked around us. And on the other side of the square, there was a group of people under close guard, The word went throughout our group like wildfire. They're they're Jews. An order was given, and we marched toward the huddled mass of Jews. There were 150 of them, or perhaps 200, including many children who stared at us with anxious eyes. A few of them were quietly crying. There were infants in their mother's arms. A truck arrived with cans of gasoline, which we unloaded and took into a house. Then we began to drive the Jews into the house. Then another truck came full of more Jews. They, too, were crammed into the house with the others. Then the doors were locked, and when we are told everything was ready, we received the command to remove the safety pins from hand grenades and threw them through the windows of the house. The building was immediately set on fire, and we, the soldiers, stood outside while we heard the Jews scream and scream and scream in the fire. Some of them tried to jump out of the windows, and when they did, The soldiers with their machine guns just mowed them down. And Carl, the soldier, says, I will never forget it. I will never forget the looks on the children's faces of utter terror. I can't get the images out of my head. A few months later, in the middle of another assignment in a fight, a shell exploded by Carl's side. He said, I lost consciousness. It was a miracle that I was still alive even now as I am good as dead. So I lie here waiting for death. The pains in my body are terrible, but worse still is my conscience that I cannot die without coming clear. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I don't know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew and that's enough. In the long nights while I've been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg for forgiveness. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you. But without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Before I die, I need to know. I need you to give me mercy. And Simon became speechless. He didn't know what to say or how to respond. He just quietly left the room without a word. The next day, when his group returned to work at the hospital, the same nurse came to Simon and told him that Carl had died. And over the next years of the war, time and time again, through all his suffering through this horrible period, Simon thought of Carl and wondered if he should have forgiven him, if he should have shown him mercy. And that's how the first part of the book ends. The rest of the book is actually about all these different people chiming in on what they think Simon should do uh, because we're never told in the book, in the story, what Simon actually does. Some argue that Simon should have absolutely shown mercy. Others argue they should have not, he should have not. Others say that it wasn't his place, Simon's job to do that. And what you leave the book with is this idea that when it comes to mercy, it's easier said than done. This afternoon, we're continuing our study through the Beatitudes, which are the eight blessed sayings that make up the introductory section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Today, we come to the fifth beatitude, which says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're just going to jump right in uh, to it today from this verse. I want to share with you two promises of our fifth beatitude. Point number one, the blessings of mercy, and point number two, the rewards of mercy. First promise, point number one, the blessings of mercy. In this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We are moved forward in the description of what is the Christian man or what is a Christian woman. Now we've been referring to the beatitudes as the quintessential qualities of those who are of the kingdom of heaven or the marks of kingdom citizens. The eight beatitudes builds upon each other There is a beautiful order and a compelling progression as well as a profound unity in these simple yet weighty and searching words. Of course, our Lord Jesus clearly chose and taught these beatitudes carefully and not haphazardly. There is a logical sequence teaching us to examine ourselves, showing us more and more each step of the way, the heart and nature of Jesus himself. Let me just give you the punchline while I'm at it. These beatitudes reveal Jesus. The beatitudes collectively is the portrait of our master and king, hence they are the distinctives in which we conform to more and more as we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's why you cannot take these words out of context, but they must flow out of its context. You can't pick and choose your favorite beatitude, if you will. You can't say these attributes are more natural to me. I'm inclined more to this particular beatitude. You can't say that. You're not supposed to. You can't say, oh, uh, uh, this one is more like John and this one is more like uh, Julia. That's not appropriate here. We must examine the beatitudes in its entirety. We must plead for the Lord to draw us deeper into them. We've already seen uh, some of the results which follow when a man has truly seen himself, especially in relationship to God, When a man becomes aware of his sinful depravity, of his spiritual bankruptcy, when he is poor in spirit, when he realizes he is nothing before a holy and righteous God, what happens? The result is to mourn over sin, to be broken over his own sinful state as well as the brokenness of the world around him. Then, as he is comforted by knowing the immediate forgiveness that is offered by the finished work of Christ on the cross and by his resurrection and the hope of the eternal, endless comfort in Jesus' return, he prays Maranatha, which means, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And the blessed man, or the woman, hungers and thirsts for Christ's righteousness. There is a desperate and continual hunger and thirst in a man who has tasted God's righteousness. If you heard the re-recording of the sermon from last week, as Thomas Watson put it, every sauce of affliction on earth wets our appetite, wets man's appetite for more of God. He knows no earthly thing can fully or lastingly fill, and such a man is fully satisfied in God alone. Why? How? Because God is a generous God. He gave unto Christ the Spirit without measure. Why? so that we may be filled up in him that we you and I may be satisfied in him alone. Jesus Christ is an overflowing wellspring of life. Hallelujah. He is an unquenchable river of life. Amen. He is our daily manna as it says in Luke 14:15, "Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God." Lamentations 3:24 which says, "He is my portion forever." Therefore, I will hope in him. Here now in the fifth beatitude are some further consequences which are inevitably manifested only when one is a true Christian man or a woman. Here in this beatitude is the turning point, if you will, where the first four beatitudes focuses on our relationship with God. The second four beatitudes focuses on our relationship to our fellow man. And for this particular beatitude, there is a very sharp and well-defined logical connection with the immediately preceding verse, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Are you getting it? Listen carefully. For those who are hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness desperately, as they should be, are those who are able to understand and desire mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Think about that for a second. Blessed are the merciful. What a searching statement that is. Think upon it. Give yourselves to God for more understanding and illumination of these truths. What in the world does that mean? Blessed are the merciful in this particular order. Lloyd Jones says, What a test of each one of us, of our whole standing and of our profession of the Christian faith, that those who are happy in Jesus, those who are approved by Jesus, those who are blessed, who are sons and daughters of the most holy and merciful God, are those who are merciful. Now you may be thinking, what's the problem? I agree with it. Christians should be merciful people. I appreciate mercy. I like that verse, Hosea 6, 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I agree with it. Amen to that. I want you to know something. Sure, it's easy for us to desire mercy when we get caught red-handed in the act, we, we, we easily say we love mercy. When we get pulled over for running a red light or going over the speed limit, and Jeff, I don't know if Jeff Park is here today, our resident Rockville police officer, gives us a warning instead of a ticket, we're like, yeah, we love mercy. Right? Who doesn't love that? Yet the problem is, when the rubber meets the road, when it comes to exercise mercy, expend mercy, extend mercy to others who offend us, who have wronged us gravely, who have clearly violated our trust, who refuse to admit their guilt and still yet refuses to apologize. Mercy, truthfully, if you are being honest, again, is easier said than done. That was the dilemma of Simon Wiesenthal and the conundrum of so many of us who harbor hatred in our hearts, who nurture bitterness in our bowels, Is it of wonder why there are so many division in our society today, in our churches, in our churches, in our families, even in ourselves? Proverbs 14.30 says, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy and envy is rottenness to the bones. I love the New Living Translation of it, jealousy and envy is like cancer in the bones, If you've experienced a broken relationship with somebody, you know the life-sucking, all-consuming thing that is. Obviously, the more involved you are with someone, the more consuming it seems to be. But think about even just being a victim of road rage. When you're driving and you're singing some Jesus songs, right, and somebody cuts you off and maybe flicks you off, because let's be honest and let's admit it, you were looking at your phone or just being honest today, you're a bad driver, right? And somebody cuts you off and gives you this face. You get upset and you get all worked up like, what? What in the world? If only we were merciful, if only we had a merciful heart. I wonder how so many of our relationships would be different today. Now, you're following me, right? It's getting harder. It's getting more searching as we progress into the Beatitudes. It requires more humility. Blessed are the merciful. Happy are the merciful, And I wonder if some of the reasons why so many Christians aren't happy in the church today, because they do not have mercy in their hearts. Now, before we move on, I want to define what mercy is. I'm going to define it in two ways, in the secular term and in the biblical terms. So Merriam-Webster defines mercy as this, a compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's power. I've heard it in these terms, grace is receiving something undeserved, unasked freely given as in receiving a gift. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what we actually deserve, like the example I gave about a police officer giving us a warning instead of a ticket for violating traffic signs. In biblical terms, you'll notice how mercy is inseparable with God's nature. Look up every verse about mercy in Scripture, and you cannot separate it with God's character and His nature. It can only be defined in reference to God Himself. Mercy means and describes God's pity compassion, kindness toward His people. It's often interchangeably used with the phrase, steadfast love. This is why one theologian defines biblical mercy as, God's mercy is His tender-hearted, loving compassion for His people. It is His tenderness of heart towards the needy. If grace contemplates humanity as sinful, guilty, and condemned, mercy sees them as miserable and needy. I love the idea that mercy is God's patience in action, as according to Christian author and blogger Tim Chalice. Mercy is God extending patience to those who deserve to be punished. As Chalice says, mercy is not something God owes to us. By definition, mercy cannot be owed, but it's something that God extends in kindness and grace to those who do not deserve it. So the point of us defining mercy in these ways are as follows in defining mercy in the world, in in the human terms, we have no obligation whatsoever to display compassion or forbearance to an offender to those who have wronged us in whatever way whatsoever. We maintain the position of power by withholding mercy for not saying sorry because to apologize would mean to admit our wrongdoing and our fault. It would be a sign of weakness, if you will. To illustrate this point, as you know, The Choi family are getting ready to move back up here to Montgomery County. And so we recently put our home on the market. And God blessed us with a Christian realtor. She's been such a blessing to us. And our house sold on the first day it was put on the market. But not only was our house sold within a few hours, uh, the person who made the first offer offered what's called a Godfather offer. Have you heard of it? Basically, whatever the highest bid that comes in, she will bid higher she didn't even see the house, but she loved the community. She loved the the rows of houses on our streets so much. She did a lot of research. She said, I will take the house no matter what the cost is, okay? And when the time came for the offer to be disclosed, no competition, right? No other offer came close, way above the selling price. Not only that, she waived all the contingencies, no inspection, No appraisal. 100% cover for all the closing costs and taxes. And best of all, 60-day free rent back. We can live in the house for two months for free. You can imagine my excitement and joy. Overjoy. This is God's grace. Completely undeserved. But on the week of our final signing and our closing to hand off our home, we get word that this week... That she is breaking the contract. What? How? We were so shocked. We thought the deal was sealed. We thought the case was closed. We knew she really wanted the house. We really wanted to sell the house. But because she wanted to break the contract, she hired a lawyer. And to argue nonsensically through technicality that she didn't have to pay the earnest money down payment for breaking the contract, she was trying to get out of it with no damage done to herself. Anyways, at the end of the day, we negotiated um, to at least cover the expenses that were lost for this potential transfer, and by God's grace, by God's grace, our home was bought by another person last night, by the second buyer. Hallelujah. It was drama city for the Choice family uh, this week, y'all. But the point of this story is this, that in the world's understanding of mercy, no mercy No weakness, no compromise, no admittance to wrong. Even if you're wrong, don't admit it. Hire some lawyers and protect yourself. That is the world's way of mercy. Remain in the position of power. Don't let your guard down. Of course, for us, this whole whole ordeal taught me a sovereignly appropriate and relevant humbling lesson on mercy according to today's passage. I'm telling you, God's timing is perfect. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now hear me out. Please get my point exactly and clearly. I'm not saying that I was this Christ-like figure extending mercy to all. That's not what I'm saying. I didn't extend mercy to the one who offended so that God would have mercy on me and so that somebody else would buy the house. I know, and everyone who knows us knows We could have never bought this house in the first place, the the house that we were trying to sell, if it wasn't for God's grace. Six years ago, we were not in a financial place to purchase anything. My only desire was to have a roof over my family, my wife and kids, to be near the church, Capitol Baptist Church, where we were being sent out of to get more pastoral training, to get more preparation, to be able to lead a church someday. So for me, the lesson that I'm getting right now as I'm preaching, brothers and sisters, I don't think it is a coincidence that on the first Sunday, after 10 months of waiting and praying and waiting and praying, for some of us longer than 10 months, for years, for decades, to see another gospel-centered church be established here in the heart of Montgomery County that reflects God's diverse kingdom here, is it my skills or is it my doing, is it my timing or calculating? that on the same weekend our church, NCBC, moves to Rockville, that my house is sold. I think God wants to show me and my family that this is not James Choi's doing whatsoever, that this is not the result of my hard-earned work. This is not the result of my long waiting. This is the result of God's grace. Hallelujah. This is the result of God's mercy. So hear me clearly. I'm not saying us selling our house is a sign of God's mercy. For all I know, I should continue to trust God and love God and serve God and stay persevering in this task, the same even if the house didn't sell. But God, I'm realizing, sure knows how to make a point, doesn't he? God sure knows how to prove a point that this is not about James Choi. This is not about you. This is not about me. This is not about us. This is about Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. This is about his church with or without us. Yet, What a privilege. What joy, brothers and sisters. What satisfying drink. What bread so filling and so timely. What cause so worth laboring for. While so many churches in our area have plateaued or strayed in error and heresy or dying. A new church today. This is the day a new gospel witness is planted and gathering to carry on the ministry that Jesus himself began 2,000 years ago. Amen? This is the day, brothers and sisters. May 2nd, 2021 is the day the Lord established, I'm talking about the physical aspect of it, New Covenant Baptist Church here in Rockville, Maryland. This is something that we've been waiting for and praying for. Glory be to God. Amen? May this church, despite you and me, through us advance His gospel until Jesus returns. So many people this morning texted me, pastors, friends, brothers and sisters, Saying excited for you, praying for you, praising God with you. And I want to extend that grace and encouragement to you all who are here, sitting here this afternoon, excited for you, praying for you, praising God with you. He is using each and every single one of you. He is using us to extend God's mercy, to proclaim Christ's promises to Southern Montgomery County. Amen? Now, what do I mean by extending God's mercy, which is a reminder and the promise in which we are blessed. We are blessed or approved by God. We are the recipients of God's grace because of this, because of God's mercy. We know from Scripture, the mercy seat is where the Holy God would meet with the priest on Israel's behalf. So when you get a chance, read Exodus 25, verses 19 through 22, for example. Did you know The Greek word for mercy seat translated from the Old Testament is hilestrian, which is translated propitiation. It's a word we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, which says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Dr. Stephen Nichols of Ligonier Ministry says, God desires to meet with his people, and the blood of the spotless lamb is the only means by which that meeting is possible. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Christ to come. The mercy seat was as real as the cross to come. Christ is now our mercy seat, according to Hebrews 9. Romans three, first 1 John 2.2 2 and 4.10. Brothers and sisters, the mercy seat of God always alluded to the mercy seat of God in the Old Testament, always pointed to the mercy seat of God showed us and led us to the mercy of God only and always extended to sinful human beings through the sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood in Jesus Christ, His Son. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says, the word says, blessed are the merciful, approved are the merciful, happy are the merciful, because our offenses and our sins have been propitiated, mercy seated, covered by mercy in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the best news you will ever hear. You know where I'm going, right? Don't think there goes James again with that same old gospel. Recite it in your minds with me. Preach it with me. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The power unto salvation. That God who created all things created us in love. For his glory and for our happiness. But ma'am, tempted by Satan, chose to be a God unto ourselves. Deliberately disobeying God's word. Choosing death over life again and again and again. As a result, we were separated from God. God entirely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin, but God, in his mercy, in his mercy, in an undeserving act of steadfast love, had a plan from the very beginning to forgive us, to forbear us of our wretched sins in order for us to know his great redeeming love. His plan was to send His own Son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross for our sin. He paid the debt. He propitiated our sins and satisfied the wrath of God towards sin that no amount of sacrifice could ever pay, that no pure blood of sacrificed animals could ever cleanse. A payment we would have paid rightly paid in eternal hell. Jesus paid it all. By His sinless death and perfect sacrifice, it was finished once and for all. He was dead. He was buried. The tomb was shut. They thought it was over, but it wasn't over, was it? On the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that Christ defeated sin and Satan, which meant that the power of sin, Satan, and death was no more, and all who would come to know His mercy would come to repent over our sin which is simply an acknowledgement before God. I am guilty. I have wronged you, God. I have wronged others. I have wronged myself. And it is a plea for mercy. Help me to look to you, Lord. Help me to look to Jesus. Help me to trust in him with my whole life. The promise of the gospel is that you will not die and go to hell as we rightly deserve, but participate in his resurrection because of the finished work of Christ. To live Here on earth, an abundant life until he returns when you and I will be with him in eternity. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we welcome you. We thank you so much for joining us on our first Sunday gathering in Rockville. But we know that if you're not a Christian, that you did not come here this afternoon by coincidence. Nothing is coincidence. If you came with a friend, know that someone has been praying for you. The Lord of mercy and grace has brought you here by grace. In the well-known book, Just Mercy, now turned a famous movie, the author quotes, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. This is simply what all Christians must admit to, that before the only righteous God, we are far worse than we think we are in ourselves. Before Him, today, confess that is true of you. If the Lord is showing you that truth, confess that and acknowledge that today. Acknowledge that you need His mercy. Let go today, friend, the pains and sorrows of others hurt who hurt you, who have wronged you. Cast your cares on Jesus. He can bear your sins. In fact, He has already done so on the cross. Amen? That is the first step of healing and restoration and rescue from ears of cancerous anger and bitterness and callousness. Cast your worries. Cast your burdens. Cast your past on Jesus today and receive his mercy this afternoon. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Hear me clearly. You don't have to get yourself all cleaned up to come to Jesus. You don't have to have some sort of proven record. Today is the day that the Lord has made. You can rejoice and be glad in it. You can choose to be happy in Jesus by responding to him in repentance. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, I'll be standing at the back door at the end of service. Please talk to me or talk to someone sitting next to you who seems to be happy to be here. And fellow NCBC members, be on the lookout for any unhappy people here this afternoon. Make sure to bombard them after service because we want nobody here today to leave here unhappy in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Christians are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing according to 2 Corinthians 6.10. 1st Thessalonians 5:16 says be joyful always. This means no matter what season of life, no matter what trials or circumstances, what conflicts come our way, Christians have a reason to rejoice. The only reason Christians aren't joyful is because you've allowed something or someone to rob you of that joy from you. Jesus says in John 15:11, "I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete." Amen. Better yet, some of you need some joy therapy this afternoon or this week because it's hard to be around Christians who aren't joyful. Here are some verses you can meditate on. Psalm 16:11, Psalm thirty five, Psalm 126, 5 through 6, Isaiah 61:10, Zephaniah 3, 17, Habakkuk 3, 17, and 19, Romans 15, 13, James one two, Galatians five twenty two, Philemon one seven, Romans twelve twelve, there are so many more verses on Christian joy and contentment. If you didn't write any of those down, <laughs> go listen to the sermon again. You need these verses. <laughs> Better yet, brothers and sisters, if you have lost your joy in Christ, consider if you have not remembered the mercy you have obtained from the Lord. Consider if you have not been extending mercy to other brothers and sisters who are believers, or worse, to non-believers. Some of you may think, you don't know me. You don't know my struggles. You don't know my past. If you are a Christian, if the Lord is your mercy seat, I know His mercy is your mercy. I know His joy is your joy. I know His hope is your hope this afternoon. So drink deep and feast in His righteousness. That's the blessing. Point number one. Point number two, promise. Number two is much shorter, the awards of mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. The difficulty of understanding this beatitude outside the context of Christ, the gospel, and to merely see it as an ethic is so missing the point, okay? You can't see this beatitude as some kind of instruction to live a better life, if you will. Because as I alluded to earlier, no amount of doing mercy will merit God's mercy on you. One must understand, Christianity is not about doing, but about being. We didn't become Christian because we did mercy. We are merciful because Christ has had mercy on us. We show mercy because we have received mercy. That's a big difference those who try to do all these acts of mercy, especially in our generation, in our day, it's completely different from Christian mercy, you see. Such qualification is what makes the Christian Christian, that we extend mercy out of the mercy that has been poured out on us. Mercy flows out of a Christian because his boundless, measureless mercy has been poured on us. That is the reward of this beatitude, brothers and sisters, that those who have experienced mercy continues to be conduits or pipelines of His mercy. Merciful people don't conjure up mercy in themselves. Merciful people are people who have been extended mercy and continues to extend that mercy to others. Merciful people are forgiven people. Merciful people are those who understand the gravity of their own sin and the gravity of other sins around them in the world. So just imagine someone who claims to know Christ but yet continually fails to extend mercy. Such was the parable of the merciful slave in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, was it not? The slave owed his master an immense sum of money in today's currency, about $20 million. The debt was impossible to repay, so he pleads with his master, who with amazing compassion forgives him his entire debt. Incredibly, shockingly, however, the wicked slave goes out, and finds another fellow slave who owes him $2,000, and what does he do? The wicked slave throws that guy in prison. Well, another slave reports this injustice to their master, and the wicked slave is summoned. In Matthew uh, 18, verses 32 through 35, the master says, You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. Brothers and sisters, these words, though hard, violent, confronting, and surgical as what one commentator says, are written mercifully to us, for us. It's a warning for any Christians who claim to know Jesus, yet acts unmercifully toward others. Others who knowingly or unknowingly have offended you, wronged you, even violated you, or even abused you. Listen. Showing mercy does not mean weakness. Mercy and justice are not opposites. In Christ, justice and mercy go together on the cross. Remember? But unlike the world's idea of justice, again, it is not simply to have the upper hand It is not to see someone else pay for their wrongs. Rest confident. Be assured the guilty will be punished. Injustices will be vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. The mercy is God's calling for us, for those who are in Christ. Showing mercy to the undeserving is evidence that you have received mercy. Mercy is the way to grace, Mercy is the pathway to joy. Thomas Watson says, how miserable is it to have a sea of sin and not a drop of mercy. He says, unmercifulness is the sin of the heathen, as according to Romans one thirty-one. While you put off the bowels of mercy, you put off the bade of Christianity. And for such a person, James 2.13 says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, I'm wrapping up. Hosea 6, verse 6 says again, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. To love mercy as Christians, as his sons and daughters, is to love what God loves. Meditate on Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 23. To love mercy is to know the very heart of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says... You have never to drag mercy out of Christ as money from a miser, but mercy flows freely from him like the stream from the fountain or sunlight from the sun. The reward of mercy is to know Christ deeper and truer. As we come before him in celebration of the Lord's Supper, let's remember this afternoon the great mercy Christ has poured out on you and me and let us plead to our Lord that the streams of His mercy will pour forth and out from NCBC to Rockville, to Maryland, and beyond for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and honor You this day on this very momentous occasion when we are in the, the moment experiencing Your abundant grace. Father, we prayed long and hard, that you would lead us here to Southern Montgomery County, and here we are. Father, what privilege we have, what joy we have to be part of the work that you are doing, and we pray, Lord, through the faithfulness of you and through the diligence of this congregation that you will carry out your gospel from here to Rockville, to Montgomery County and beyond. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.